This is Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, the cinema of Steve Buscemi, a podcast about the work of beloved actor Steve Buscemi. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is Liam O'Donnell. Today, we'll be looking at the horror comedy Ed and His Dead Mother from the year 1993. Liam, how are you doing today? You know, I'm pretty good. How are you, Doug? Liam, we're still in the middle of a lockdown, though I'll tell you what, you know what I'm starting to think? I'm starting to think this whole COVID-19 thing is a big hoax. (laughs) By the government. What do you think? <laughs> that sounds accurate. I'm sure you know, I'm sure there are millions of listeners in New York who would agree with you. You know, I uh, <laughs> I, I usually present you, Liam, as the reactionary nut job on a lot of our podcasts, but I've decided to take that role on myself because I feel like it's a way to get more attention on myself, right? Because people who perpetuate these really unpleasant and uh, and really dangerous ideas, and that's me. I'm a dangerous thinker, I think, Liam. Oh, I definitely think of you as like a true edge lord. Mm. Uh, perhaps uh, what is? How do I want to put this? A human fedora. Yes, that's. Well, I think people think that about me already. So uh, I think reinforcing <laughs> that can only be a good thing. Liam, we are in the middle, or actually, maybe not in the middle. That that wouldn't be that would be a little unfair at this point. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. We're locked in our houses, but we're not the only ones. As the <laughs> beloved Imagine video that came out a couple of weeks back proved celebrities have a lot of time on their hands. Yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> That's about all I could muster for that. <laughs> celebrities have more time than ever on their hands because they're no longer making uh, the wonderful television and movie projects that we enjoy because mm. they have to social distance so instead they're on their telephones they're making tiktoks mm. they're making instagram live videos they're they really just very hard they're filling them. their time in a lot of really interesting ways would you agree with that liam uh, you know i almost sure okay well tell me the bit that you don't agree with interesting <laughs> <laughs> i do think that this sort of very unique circumstance really separates the performers who uh, know their audience and know how the real world works from those who have been so isolated from their bubble of celebrity that they think everything they do is brilliance. That's very fair. And I think that um, there are actually, as much as I'm trying to no sell you, because I just think um, <laughs> there's so much just narcissism on display right now uh there are plenty of people who are actually doing very well who are like you know for every imagine video there's a quest love in his apartment for three hours just djing on the internet yeah people are stoked there's no reason not to be stoked on that without a doubt one of the greatest djs in the world and and really one of the questions you ask is can quest love rocket without an audience responding and I, granted, I don't have the time to sit and watch hours and hours of him spinning records, <laughs> but he still seems to be doing pretty good, even without that feedback from an audience, without that you know natural energy. So, yeah, I, I think if you have something that people appreciate you for, that's great. If you um, have a way that you can lift up people uh, and help out, that's great. If you just want to like uh, share some sentiments or like I don't know, there's a there's I just I also don't need like. Uh, there's a limit to like how much creativity too. like if, if you're planning to launch your like one person opera on Instagram live, I just have to be like, bro, like let's just try something else. All right. So some of our fellow podcasters uh, did the very interesting idea of going on a zoom chat and then doing live reads of scripts. And when I first heard that, I was like, that's so interesting. That's something I'd like to see. And then I watched five minutes of one and I'm like, this is garbage. I don't want to watch this anymore. <laughs> I good. I but I wish you had added each and every one of them to let them know that you were dissing them on our show. Um, no, I mean, yeah, okay. I like, think it's a fun idea. I mean, I do yeah, think it's, and I, it looked like they were having fun, but it just isn't fun to watch. Yeah, I think. Look, I think there are plenty of people who are doing stuff, and it's fun. I've, I've, you know, my Instagram live. I don't follow that many persons of note but the few I, the few i do have occasionally been doing videos talking to other people who are interesting and sometimes those are like great like one of the instagrams i follow is vinyl conflict which is like that dude's not famous but his instagram is pretty popular because he 
uh, posts a lot about rare and hard to find records. Well, sure. he's been able to get all kinds of interesting musicians on, not just to talk about their music, but to talk about their record collections. So seeing Roger Murray of Agnostic Front holding up, because I'm picturing this dude who used to live in squats in the 80s, he doesn't have a record collection, right? right. He couldn't have kept his records. My man had demos and seven inches that are lost to time that people don't even remember the band existed like i'm watching it and i'm like yo if this dude just like wanted to become rich he could just sell all these records you know not that he doesn't make enough money as a you know musician but you know it was just like it was unbelievable so like there are definitely occasions when doing stuff online is like really cool it's just you know sometimes you're like okay i mean i'm sure people watching me talking about my vhs tapes on cinepunks is they're not stoked on that but i was stoked on doing it so i guess that's the other thing is that sometimes people just need something to do with themselves yeah, well, with that in mind, what I'm really trying to put out there is that if you can't get a celebrity to guest on your podcast right now, you're you're straight trash. <laughs> is this when you introduce Steve Buscemi? That's right, Mr. <laughs> Steve Buscemi, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no, I just what I really mean is that if people have a little bit more time, and you know, you can sometimes witness in real time how they're using that extra time. And one of the things that I'm I'm going to try to focus on the positive because even though everyone dunked on that Imagine video for rightly or wrongly, uh, there are a lot of initiatives ongoing right now where celebrities are pitching in in some way and trying to gain attention or help, sorry, gain attention for some of these initiatives. And one of those is Brooklyn for Life, which is an initiative that was co-founded by Jeffrey Wright, the actor. Liam, what do you think about Jeffrey Wright, the actor? Uh, I've liked him in quite a few things, um, but he, I don't know, he's got a real mixed, real mixed bag, right? Like, there's a few things he's done that I'm kind of like, ooh, this is not great. He was really good in Angels in America. Would you agree with that? Yes, definitely. Do do you know what I always think about when I think about Jeffrey Wright? (laughs) Oh, no, what? (laughs) He got in a fight on Twitter with Paul F. Tompkins once. Because Paul F. Tompkins wrote that Jeffrey Wright, uh, his IMDb profile, the, like the description in that profile, was the most obviously written by the actor profile he'd ever seen, and he posted it, and it is just this incredibly self-serving thing. And Jeffrey Wright found it, and he tore into Paul F. Tompkins, and it was just the strangest, most surreal fight between celebrities that I actually enjoy ever on Twitter. I don't think I. I haven't seen a lot of fights between celebrities on Twitter because I don't right, it almost never happens, time. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm sure it does happen sometimes. I'd like to see one that I actually liked. Well, well, you could check out that one. It was a while back. Maybe they've made up at this point. I kind of hope that they didn't. But Jeffrey Wright did start an initiative or co-started an initiative called Brooklyn for Life, which was um, about delivering meals from local restaurants to frontline healthcare workers, which, of course, right now is more crucial than ever. And recently, Brooklyn for Life released a video featuring many, many celebrities, uh, basically celebrating the work of of these frontline workers, and one of the people included in this video, Liam, which I don't know if you've seen or not, is Steve Buscemi. He uh, he lended his uh, his unique appearance to this video. That's great. I have not seen the video. Well, I did send it to you beforehand, and I even suggested that you check it. Out. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's I think you're making that up. <laughs> Uh, it is a really interesting video. I think it's mostly interesting because you see the various qualities of the cameras used by different celebrities. And, I mean, it, look, they're all taking it very seriously, as well they should. And it's interesting to see. I mean, this isn't the reason that you should be watching this. The reason is because this is a really uh, good initiative that is doing a lot of good in the world. But it is interesting to see how good some of these performers are at just delivering solemn, serious lines, which is just like... Sometimes they're just saying Brooklyn for life, and sometimes they're bridging parts of the video. But, you know, you got your Paul Giamatti, and you got your Daniel Craig, and then you have your Ansel Elgort in there. And it's just a, it's a real mixed bag. Yeah, I, I, I believe you. I, I bet it's a real uh, interesting whiplash of people. Speaking of other things that Steve Buscemi – by the way, Liam, this is a podcast about Steve Buscemi. <laughs> oh, it is. Oh, cool. Other things that Steve Buscemi is doing during the lockdown is that he's involved in a series on YouTube called Gotham Reads, where celebrities read children's books for children. I like that. I'm into that. Um, I'm wondering. You have a child, Liam. This is a series where celebrities are reading children's books to children, and you have a young child, Liam, so this must be something you're excited about. 
Yeah, I've been wondering about um, story hours read by celebrities and if there's any that are pretty interesting. Uh, the only one we've we've done, well, there's a local one we've tried to do, but it um, it uh, occurs at a bad time for Maeve. And then we've a couple times done one in Philly. There's a very well-known drag queen named Martha Graham Cracker, and uh, we've watched her do that a couple times, and that was spectacular. Um, but uh, as far as like more... Um, you know, someone of the caliber of Steve Buscemi, I hadn't heard, you know, I, I, I'm not really connected to that much like uh, kid stuff news. Sure. Uh, so I don't really know uh, what's going on in the world of like things for Maeve to do. It's a real interesting list of names of uh, celebs who will be reading these books, including Cory Booker, uh, your favorite Cory Booker, uh, and some mm. other names who I don't recognize. And Patrick Warburton is going to do it as well. But the one I'm most interested in is going to be Steve Buscemi. His video is not out yet. Liam, if you could choose any children's book to be read by Steve Buscemi, what would it be? Um, I mean... I'm putting I'm, you on the spot to come up with something I'm, interesting, eh? <laughs> uh, no, I'm inclined to do a Dr. Seuss book just because that's... Oh. That, there's so much, like... Uh, 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 persona you can put into it, you can make it so big. Um, but yeah. honestly, uh, we don't do a lot of Dr. Seuss with Maeve. Uh, there's a there's a book that she really likes, or I say she really likes it. Maybe she does it. Maybe I just like it, and that makes her appreciate it more. But there's a book called uh, Ada Twist Scientist, uh, and I would definitely love to have Steve Buscemi read that because that's just one of one of the favorites we do with her uh, that actually has some meat to it. Some of the ones that she likes are shorter because we tend to do them before bed. So uh, right. <laughs> she's, she, a, a shorter book kind of goes over better. I mean, that makes total sense. Uh, I want Steve Buscemi to read the children's classic, The Monster at the End of This Book, featuring Grover from Sesame Street, Liam. I don't think I've ever actually read it. What? It's a children's classic. Honestly, it is one of those books that um, reading it by yourself is fun, but having someone read it to you is even more fun because, A, they can try to do their Grover voice, and B, there's a lot of big moments in it where you can really play it up if you're, say, a parent or an uncle or uh, someone reading a book to a child. Sure. I'd, to, I'd like to see Steve Buscemi go big. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, you know what? There's a book that Maeve has that always gets me a little bit emotional called Corduroy, and I feel like Steve Buscemi reading Corduroy, he could add some real like uh, emotion to that, you know? Well, I'm going to link in the show notes uh, Gotham Reads, and we can all together be surprised by which book Steve Buscemi ends up reading. Hopefully that will be out by the time this episode is into the world. But Liam, I think that's enough Steve Buscemi news during this pandemic. We need to take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about a oft-requested Steve Buscemi project. We're going to be talking about 1993's Ed and His Dead Mother. Join us for that right after this. Did you get Mother? You didn't get her, did you? No. Your mother's right here. You put my mother in the trunk? Well, geez, Ed, she's dead. You think I'm going to get her all over my seats? Let me see her. I don't know, Ed. She's been dead a while. It's not real pretty. I want to see her. Oh, my God, she's in pieces. Oh, that's kind of the problem. <laughs> Why'd you cut her up? That's how we found her. She uh, donated some of her organs or something? Well, she, she donated some to the Oikovold School of Medicine. But Mother was big on education. Well, that's nice, but this this is a disaster. It's yeah. like putting a car together without a transmission. Can't, can't you do something? I don't know, Ed. I mean, well, here. Look at this. Uh, <laughs> We reanimate with her brain like this. She's going to be good for slobbering and watching Married with Children, and that's about it. A morning son makes a deal to reanimate his one-year dead mother. However, things turn into an unexpected direction. It's Ed and his dead mother from the year 1993, directed by Jonathan Wax, who also directed the movie Pow Wow Highway, which is a very, uh, very good movie I enjoy very much. Mystery Date, which is a movie I don't enjoy, and he produced, Liam, and this might be interesting to you because you're a hardcore punk, the movie Repo Man. Love Repo Man. I love Repo Man too. Written by Chuck Hughes, who who uh, wrote the movies Mirage from 1990 and Midnight Fair from the year 1991. Ed and his dead mother has an all-star cast, including, of course, Steve Buscemi as Ed Chilton and also Ned Beatty as Uncle Benny, 
as well as John Grease shows up as not a punk character, but as a uh, convict recently released from prison. As well as Sam Sorbo as the romantically the wife of Kevin Sorbo, Liam. Kevin Sorbo, a beloved actor in your household. Nope. You know what I like about Kevin Sorbo? Nothing. <laughs> the answer is his nothing. Gen- his general vibe that in any situation, he's definitely on the hunt to uh, sexually assault someone. He seems like, and I'm just going to put this out here. I'm just saying he seems like. I have no confirmation on this. He seems like a piece of shit. Maybe it's just because of everything he's said and done over the past <laughs> 20 years of his existence. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, I also don't know the gentleman, but his public persona is bad. And mm-hmm. then when I shared the same space with him for an hour in Austin, uh, that also made me uncomfortable. Uh, we didn't interact in any way, but just his presence made me feel a little weird. Yeah. So, uh, what we're but Kevin Sorbo is not in the movie, and his dead mother, his wife is. Uh, his wife. Oh, I think she's very good in this movie. She has to play both a very sexy character, and then afterwards we find out that she's been very manipulative, and still have to remain a uh, element of sympathy. But we'll talk about that in just a bit. First, Liam, my understanding is that this is a movie you had not seen before. Is that correct? Yeah, I I've never seen it. Didn't know anything about it before we started watching it. It was recommended by a friend of the show, Josh Goldblum. That is something we should cover on this show. Now that you have watched it, what did you think of Ed and his dead mother? So I think it took me a second to get the vibe of the movie. Um, it's described as a horror comedy. Um, and it's a lot heavier on the comedy than the horror. But that shouldn't be confused with thinking that there's a ton of gags. There's not a lot of jokes in the movie per se Mm. but but it's definitely um not a film that relies on a ton of scares or gore the way that i think of a lot of horror comedies uh once i understood sort of what the film was and where it was going i enjoyed it 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 kind of overwhelmed me with nostalgia in a way that maybe feel like maybe i had seen it before but Mm. i i definitely didn't I, i i you know it's weird. It's it's almost like I could tell you where the movie was going because of the kind of movie it was, because of like uh, th- there are certain similarities uh, to other things, um, which we'll talk about a little, in a little bit. But it feels of a certain era and like the sort of thing that you would see, uh, you know, I'm, if I'm 15, 1994, so that'd be the year after this came out, I'm 15 years old. If I'm crashing at a friend's house who has cable – we're probably watching this. I mean, honestly, yeah. like that's just the reality. And uh, it it doesn't have, I think, enough edge the way that I was able to see um, something like Reanimator uh, because um, someone had it and they were obsessed with it. This isn't the kind of movie that you went over someone's house and they were like, I have this VHS that so- someone taped for me off a cable. You have to see it. It's crazy. Like it's not that level but is it something fun to watch with friends in the 90s yeah i'm actually kind of amazed i had never seen it before but everything about it is very familiar um i I will say there's parts i don't love i really do think the movie could actually benefit from a little bit more of an edge uh whatever direction that went um and i and i think there's a couple of times too many where the film relies on um steve buscemi's physical humor in that his eyes are very big. So the first couple times there's it's not quite a whip pan, but there's a couple of times where there's a reaction shot of Steve Buscemi that's like, "Look, he's freaking out. His eyes are real big." <laughs> and honestly, they work. It's great. But towards the end of the movie, I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. He has big eyes, guys. Like, let's keep going. There's other there's got to be other humor you can mine from this topic." It's interesting because the movie takes place in a recognizable reality. However, it's slightly off-center from the reality that you and I would recognize. So when really unusual things occur, sometimes characters are like, oh my God, that's really strange. And other characters are like, ah, whatever. Like, they're... They're surprised that someone has come back from the dead, but they're not so surprised that they're like freaking out about it. So just to elaborate a little bit on the plot for those who haven't seen this. And by the way, this movie, you can watch it for free on Tubi.tv. Uh, I'll link that in the show notes as well. Steve Buscemi has lost his mother about a year ago. Uh, he's still He was a mama's boy, uh, as, as they say over and over in this movie, and he misses her very much. And he is approached by a white-haired, white-suited man with this 
basically this technology that will allow him to bring his mother back to life for a fee, of course. And this guy works for a company that specializes in that, in this entirely. And this is not presented as this incredibly sci-fi concept. Steve Buscemi's character, Ed, doesn't know that it exists, that you can do this, but when he doesn't question it. I mean, he questions it at, at the, at initially like at the very onset, but once he's in, he's all in, and there's no real questions. And... His mother does come back, but then, of course, there's a few wrinkles involved, including that she needs to eat things that are alive in order to maintain being alive, and there's a cost in- involved with that. I do have to say, Liam, I think John Glover is amazing in this movie. As Agreed. This, as this, you know, he's a salesman who is obviously a piece of garbage, but also has a little bit of sympathy involved, and he is trying to do somewhat the right thing, but he's also kind of... Uh, Handcuffed by the job that he's doing But he also has that unique look There's a part in this movie where he drinks a full glass of milk While wearing this white suit with his white hair And it is It is the thing that I think I've taken away from this movie the most It's such an unusual thing to include yeah, I gotta agree. He's He has the right mix of like You can't trust him, but he's not entirely Bad, he's not like the villain Per se, but He is the Um the self-interested party that's going to help Ed make some bad decisions. Yeah. And and the movie is very specifically making it clear, like part of the humor is that Ed can't help but make these bad decisions and then he has to uh, ameliorate the effects of those decisions and, you know, hijinks ensue. Um, and, and the idea that uh, Ed is torn between... Um, what we can all relate to, which is that he has this neighbor who is very attractive, who is inexplicably into him, which we find out more <laughs> about later. Uh, but then he also has this thing that's hard for us to connect with, which is his interest in bringing his mother back, uh, especially because it's, you know, in defense of uh, AJ Paddle is the name of the character. Uh, he makes it clear pretty quickly this might not go well because of the state of his mother's corpse (laughs) so you get the feeling that there is a bit of a bait and switch here like any salesman but it's not all on him not everything that goes wrong is simply because ed has been duped some of it was ed having the opportunity to say you know what let's just not do this this seems like a bad idea and just not doing that because he it turns out is an idiot for those who haven't seen this movie we're going to talk about comparisons to other movies in just a second, but I just want to make it clear. When his mother comes back, she does not come back as a zombie. She does no. come back a little bit changed, as you mentioned, uh, Liam. There are suggestions. She swears a bit more, and she she acts a little bit uh, odd. Uh, but she doesn't come back, and she isn't like immediately out of control. She basically comes back at first and looks and acts exactly as she did when she was alive. So, I mean, I think that's an expectation that you have to have because the movie that this... This movie, Ed and His Dead Mother, is most often compared to is Peter Jackson's movie Dead Alive, a.k.a. Oh, yeah. Brain Dead. Yeah. Because it 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 follows a lot of the same story beats. It's about the same sort of idea. This 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 guy who loses his mother, he, he is a total mama's boy. His mother is very controlling. He brings her back uh, using, in that movie, <laughs> uh, there's, there's a much more kind of explicit zombiness occurring, but... Then that mother uh, tries to get in the way of him in this new relationship that's being formed. There's even a the use of a lawnmower as a weapon in this movie as well as in that movie. It's hard not to think of Dead Alive when you're watching Ed and His Dead Mother. And I'm not saying that there's any kind of uh, a intentional copying. In fact, they were both made around the same time. But it is a very unusual thing because if you are a fan of horror movies at around that time period and you were aware of Dead Alive or Brain Dead then this movie can't help but pale in comparison because it does all of the same things, including the humor, but does them a little bit better. Would you disagree with that, Liam? Well, I just think there it's hard for me at this point, being not hugely, but, but pretty familiar with Dead Alive and being pretty new to this film, because I don't know how many folks would have seen both movies and made that immediate Connection. At the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be- because Dead Alive is such a explosion of gore. And it's, it, it, in a way, you could argue that Ed and his dead mother is a slightly more 
um, thought out film because there are moments of Dead Alive that work because you're having guts thrown at you from the screen. You know what right. I mean? Like th- there's some of Dead Alive. I mean, the moment where the we have the parish priest screaming, you know, I kick ass for the Lord is a mm-hmm. is a is a brilliant moment, but it's a different kind of humor. It's such a That's more in your face, not obvious, but like its own sort of wild ass thing. There aren't really moments like that here. You know, Ed's mother comes back. She's like, you could say she's not a zombie, but she's like a revenant. You know, she's like a a reanimated being that isn't fully alive and is not fully herself. And in a sense, has zombie aspects. I mean, she does have to eat live things to stay alive, but she's not irrational. Um, But she is perhaps a a a. a poor reflection of the woman she once was. Uh, I, right. I would hope because I wouldn't want to bring this lady back from the dead. She's not that charming, honestly. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, that, that aside, the, the idea here is that um, I think that brain dead slash dead alive is a crazy wild ass version of a zombie movie. I don't think this is at all a zombie movie, and I think that yeah, it doesn't true. play with any of those tropes. However, the family relationship is so similar, I bet there were people who made that comparison no matter what because there are parts of the plot that aren't actually the... the there's more in common in the setting than there is in the actual narrative of the of the yeah. movie, if that makes sense. That's true, which is a much more rare thing, right? Usually when, it, when something right. is being copied... Because really, if you were going to rip off and I know that this movie isn't but if you wanted to rip off Peter Jackson's brain dead the thing that you would focus on would be the amount of gore it wouldn't be the you know the the nuanced relationship between a mother and son and his attempt to break away from these familial bonds to form a new relationship with a woman but that's really what we're seeing here yeah it's a really interesting to watch them uh back to back and you're right I think that that brain dead leans a lot heavier on slapsticks uh or they call it splat stick with that movie while this movie sure e- even though there's a lot of reaction shots and things like that the humor here is a lot goofier i think is how i would describe yes, it yes uh, agreed especially especially with you have ned Beatty's character who is he, he's playing this uncle who is kind of distanced from everything he doesn't he doesn't have this kind of pining for his sister who has passed away this would be steve buscemi's mother and when she returns you know he he's watching it all with this sense of awe. He he is a kind of an interesting character because he's very horny. He uh, spies on the new neighbor and that sort of thing, and it's kind of reinforced again and again. But he's also you know basically like Steve Buscemi's sidekick in this movie. He's just yeah. his uncle who lives in the same house who's witnessing all of these things going on. It's this movie in some way feels a little half formed, and I have theories about why that might be, even though I've never read anything to confirm them. It does feel like a movie that's holding back. Now, Liam, did you get that impression when you were watching it? I don't mean just just in terms of the violence, but even some of the plot threads don't seem to go anywhere, including the, there's a, a kind of a big deal made of how his mother has to be buried at the very end of the movie in order to make sure she doesn't come back. Am I wrong in thinking that that wasn't done correctly and that it's supposed to be set up so that she comes back? It's totally glossed. It's, it, it is, I think it was done correctly we don't we just don't see him until he's yeah. burying her head and then he misses it with the head anyway right um but yeah i mean i think um I, I i get what you're saying i i i wonder if it's hard to say exactly what's going on um in that sense because uh could it be that they ran out of money could it be that they had to make changes on set to the script and it didn't all kind of connect could sure. it be the the gore aspect? My, you know, uh, there's a suggestion we we already kind of talked about a little bit that maybe this movie originally was meant to have more violence and it got cut for some reason. Um, that that's a little hard for me. Only in that there's really only one big violent set piece that does not pan out, and that is right. there's a character and and this whole plot, by the way, does not go where it could. Which is, uh, I think it was John Grease character right he uh he comes back is that right or is that, yeah. that right yeah absolutely he, was he the comes back ride, right? basically there was a guy who had been arrested for stealing from the store he comes back this, by the way this is a hardware store that ed runs but his mother ran before yes and he comes back he does not know that ed's mother is dead and he's looking for revenge and he finally after a number of interactions shows up at the house uh 
Ed's mother at first is very nice to him. And then I don't know if she, it's unclear whether she senses his ill intentions for her or if really she's just crazy and she just wants to kill him because I she mean, wants to he kill d- him. He outright states that he's going to get his revenge on her, even in that scene. So I don't think she had to sense too much. Uh, yeah, but it, it's it, the scene is played in an interesting way where yeah, it is. Y- you just don't know that she... It's unclear that she has any negative feelings towards him until she pulls out a chainsaw. And then there's a cut. <laughs> and then we come back and the room is covered in blood. Was there meant to be more there than that? I mean, really, that's the only scene I can think of that there definitely could have been more blood and guts and whatever in that scene um but it's unclear if that was ever meant to be the case or not i, I don't know um uh, but i think when you add that into the feeling overall that some of the film is a little bit choppy that's that as the ending feels a little uh rushed and and maybe even improvised at times you know that uh that it, it leaves me wondering like what was going on with production altogether yeah, especially now we should mention as well that this is a PG thirteen rated movie, which is one of the reasons why I got this impression while watching it that things were being held back on. And maybe they maybe the decision was made early on, right? Maybe let's not waste our time doing a lot of things that are going to get us an R rating. Um and and knowing again, also having in the back of my mind that that you're already comparing it to what might literally be the most violent movie ever made in Peter Jackson's uh, Brain Dead. So, so the fact that this movie doesn't have that level of violence, and in fact has a very restrained level of violence, might be just something that sticks out because of that comparison. But the other thing that stuck out to me is that K&B, the famous effects company, did the effects work on this movie. But as far as I can see, there's almost no special effects makeup on display in this movie. Even, there's not even really zombie makeup. I mean, there is a decapitated head, but that's done the old-fashioned way where you just bury the actress up to her neck in dirt and film it that way. But there isn't really anything explicit, and that isn't impossible. It's not like you hire an effects company and they have to do crazy gore when you do it, but it's just weird to see K&B at the end credits of this movie and then not have any of that kind of trademark violence. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's about um but i also don't know what the decision would have been to cut it like what knowing that it didn't really get a theatrical that it mostly probably lived on home video and on cable right you would think that it would be able to do whatever you want yeah yeah that's actually a good point because this movie had a very brief theatrical run but you know maybe in its creation they were hoping for a little bit more i mean this is a movie that I wouldn't say it's obscure necessarily, but as you mentioned before, I mean, this isn't a movie that you saw in the 1990s. I do think it's a movie that people don't necessarily connect with the horror comedies of the mid-1990s. It's one that that kind of has, has, has uh, fallen by the wayside. I do think that this is a movie that already has a small cult around it and could have a kind of like a cult audience resurgence if more people had checked it out because it has such a strange sense of humor on display. And I actually did laugh at some of this. I did think that some of the material in this is actually legitimately funny. But there is something else that stuck out in terms of the plot is that it just it's kind of a janky... It, the whole the way that it all kind of pans out is kind of janky. Just like the like when the mother comes home as a zombie, you know, they find her in the refrigerator. That's never really explained. We just kind of got to interpret it ourselves that she has to stay cold for whatever reason because she's dead. But like, there's a lot of things that are not explicitly talked about. Even regards to that John Grease character, the 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 guy who gets out of prison. He explains things, but it kind of feels like that character was supposed to get more screen time because you only get really just a couple of scenes that feature him. I do have to say, by the way, my, the funniest thing I found in this entire movie is he arrives at Ed's house looking for his mother and he knocks on the door and then he just starts looking around because no one has answered it. And then he just makes this sudden decision to just kick the whole window in and just get in that way. And I just thought it was... Maybe that's just me. I found that really, really funny. But, you know, kind of continuing on with that, we already mentioned John Glover. We're going to talk about Steve Buscemi in a second, Liam. Were there any other performances in this movie that stuck out for you? Um, I mean, we yeah, we kind of already talked about uh, John Glover. I guess Ned Beatty um, and also the mom, uh, which is Miriam Mar- Margulies. Uh, yes. Uh. Uh, you know she's as weird as she needs to be you know what i mean mm-hmm. like that that really works for me as well um i got to say um i don't know part of me kind of thinks going back to your comment about the jankiness of the movie 
I kind of think maybe that's meant to be part of this whole uh, almost dreamlike thing with the film. That the film is like almost like more of a goofy skit. It's it's right. really an hour and a half skit that someone thought of through a little bit more than you would a normal skit. And in and of itself, that I kind of like. Like I kind of like that. It feels again like a kind of movie that I've spent a lot of time watching. Um, and so in that sense, I enjoyed it. But I guess you're right that the film isn't too interested in answering questions. That's mm. not really on the table for the film to say, let me explain wh- what's happening and why it's happening. That doesn't <laughs> seem to be important. Um, but yeah, I mean, really this film for me is about uh, Ned Beatty and Steve Buscemi. Um, Sam Sorbo, she's fine. Um, but you know, you could definitely see her role as being the whole, like I was hired to trick you with sex, but now it turns out I actually love you is such a stupid trope that the film, I don't think even takes it seriously. Like, I think the movie Mm -hmm. is like, yeah, yeah, now she likes him. It doesn't matter. You know, like, I don't think it's important really, you know, mostly because it's hard to think it's hard. It's hard to imagine why she would like him. Right, I mean, there's, there's never, he's never really shown to be particularly um, sweet or sensitive with her. All of the time that they spend together, he's so obsessed with his mother and trying to keep his mother from doing things that they never really bond in any substantial way that we see. The movie seems to suggest that um, she just has been observing him because she's spying on him, right? And right, that's right. how she's come to like him. But also. You know, until you know that she's being paid to come on to him, it feels like she's coming on to him because he's negging her, which is like the worst <laughs> yes, possible that's thing. True. That is true. But once you realize that, oh, she's doing this is her job, then it kind of makes sense. One thing I really didn't like about this movie is the framing device of it, where it's this trial that's ongoing. So at the beginning, yeah. it's in black and white as well, which is kind of interesting. Usually the the the, uh, the flashbacks go in black and white. But it's we've already learned that Steve Buscemi's character has been arrested for murdering his mother, and then it's it it we get the beginning section, we get the entire movie in flashback, and then we get to the end to find out what it is. I find that really irritating because I find myself in those kind of circumstances always waiting for the movie to catch up. And it also kind of makes it feel like it's a foregone conclusion in, some, in terms of some of the tension that we're encountering as it, un, as it goes on. Did you find that as well or, or do you not have a trouble with that sort of framing thing? I don't mind it if it's done well. I think in this case it's not as effective as it could be because the movie just doesn't matter that much. So I'm not really that concerned. I do know like, okay, Ed's going to chop his mother's head off. Um, You know, there's some question at the beginning where he's like, I chopped her head off, but I didn't kill her. Um, But as soon as you know, she's undead, then there's no drama to that. The real drama is at what point is he going to have to chop her head off? How bad are things going to get? And in that sense, I was really expecting her to murder uh, Storm Reynolds or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I really was like, oh, that's what's going to happen here, um, and that's not what happens. And so that you know, there was a bit of like a surprise in that. I think the black and whiteness of it is stupid. Like it just is unnecessary. It doesn't really bring anything. Um, and I also think it's interesting to use a framing device and then still end with a what I would call Tales from the Crypt style stinger at the end. Yeah, like, uh uh-huh, your mom said, but here's your dad, blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, really, we're going to do that? But, you know, then again, I kind of thought, well, I think the movie is meant to be more screwball than it ends up being. So I think think the framing device, I think the choppiness of it, I think even the way that she's like, it turns out I love you, Ed. It's all meant to be a setup, and then the punchline is the dad. It's supposed to play like a long joke I just told you at the bar. And in that way, it's not wholly successful, but I kind of appreciate it. And in fact, the afterwards, I found myself actually liking that more because it was not, not what I was expecting. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it's... Again, I would love to read a little bit more about the making of this movie. It, I don't know if this was a beleaguered production, if there were some difficulties involved. I mean, certainly, it you know they make that joke that it didn't get released; it escaped, right? It kind of felt like that happened with this movie. But I do. It just seems. It just feels like when you're watching it that there was something going on where maybe they weren't sure exactly what 
kind of tone they were going for, or maybe there was some difficulty kind of breaking the story as it was happening. But even that framing device feels like something that was kind of tacked on as opposed to kind of naturally being part of the plot. Though that stinger you mentioned, that even that stinger's kind of a little bit weird. Even though it's set up earlier that Steve Buscemi's character has a difficult relationship with his father. So the idea is that when his father is brought back at the end, that he's he's like shocked and it's supposed to be kind of funny. But even the idea that John Glover's character, A.J. Paddle, at that point is come over to being more sympathetic again, that doesn't really make a lot of sense either. Also, the opening sequence with the courtroom, it's set up that this there's this letter that's going to explain everything to the judge. What was that letter? I have no idea. It, he just explains it himself, right? I don't I don't understand what that that aspect of it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, so there's there's a few things in this movie that just doesn't don't seem to really go anywhere. Uh, it, but I mean, it is it's still 90 minutes. It still feels like a full movie. But I would love to check out more about the making of, and maybe I'll do a little bit more research on that. I was doing it this morning. I couldn't find any interviews. I did find reviews at the time, which generally were not very kind, outside of the one from Film Threat magazine. But if you are a, a fan of Ed and his dead mother, and maybe have a little bit more information about its creation, we'd love to hear from you. Why don't you head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com and send us an email. Liam, it's time for us to talk about Steve Buscemi in this movie. Now, he is the lead. This was in the wake of Reservoir Dogs, which I believe came out in 1992. So, and also in Living in Oblivion, which was, I think, a couple years after this, I guess. So, but he was still, this is really in the meat of the, uh, of Steve Buscemi's career where he's getting exposed to the wider world as, as a lead actor, as someone who can carry a movie. But... Even though we did see in Filmhouse Fever his comedic side, that's really, even though he's been in a lot of kind of comedic roles, this is much more broadly comedic than I'm used to seeing him in. How did you think he handled it in Ed and His Dead Mother? I mean, I think he's good. I think the the role is underwritten. And I think yeah. that he could I think that he could deliver a lot more to the table. I think his primary function is to uh be that character who's under pressure who's freaking out and trying to make things work you know does that make sense yeah he's, he's the guy in the china shop trying to keep all the plates from breaking exactly absolutely and, he's he's, just, he's the plate spinner for sure yeah and so like that's fine and he's great at that and they really do rely on his physicality in a lot of ways um but we know he's capable of more just on this show what we've covered that he's capable of more and so um it's a bit of a frustrating performance only in that I feel like the if the movie had a broader comedic take. But the script doesn't allow for that. And for what the script allows for, he's still great. I think he does the best he can do with what he's given. I think the the age he's at, the his physicality, he's the right person for the role. Um, I think we, we've touched on this before, but I want to uh, uh, reiterate here. I do think... Um, you know, they dress him in a certain way that gives off a certain vibe. But the idea that, like, part of the reason he's so amazed that this random neighbor wants to fuck him is because, <laughs> like, he couldn't imagine that he would be attractive enough for that. Right. Is like, this is too early for that to be the vibe to me. You mm. know what I mean? Like, I, I just think, I think young Steve Buscemi is quite handsome. I think as he gets older, his look becomes more unique. And I get why people might see that as unattractive. I don't necessarily agree, but I get it uh, when he's a little bit older. You know, I, I think, for example, his being kind of a obscure loser in Ghost World is like a fit thing like that works. Right. In this movie, it's like, yeah, you put him in a shitty outfit. It's 1993. Like put him in something that look that pops. And I think he <laughs> I think he could carry the role as like a guy that someone might want to actually be involved with. But I think he the character calls for him to be a certain way. I think he does the best he he could possibly do with it. The thing that I like most about this performance is when he's playing off a character directly. So the scenes where it's just him and Ned Beatty, the scenes where it's just him and John Grease, and they're just kind of, well, there's actually only one scene like that. But when he just has a single person to play off of, and then, you know, it's it the comedic tone comes through, but it's not as reliant on those reaction shots that you were mentioning earlier, where it's just two characters kind of... Uh, going back and forth because he is playing kind of an everyman character here even though he is supposed to be a mama's boy they don't lean too heavily on it he just misses his mom it's it's kind of strange because once his mother comes back she's doting on him pretty substantially and she's very much as uh, almost like a 1950s style housewife where she's like making him milk and cookies and making finger sandwiches and all that sort of shit but but you know he's not shown as being 
pathetic necessarily in the way that the character in Braindead is. He's kind of a normal guy who just has this thing that's holding him back from enjoying his life. And again, that's what the character uh, arc in this movie is supposed to be, is this realization that he can let go of his mother. Um, and, and I think that that I think that because the tone of this movie is silly, that maybe the seriousness of that arc doesn't come through in a way that's very satisfying. Um, not that this movie should be too serious, but there is a suggestion, you know, that he's promised his mother that he wouldn't say goodbye to her, that he's never going to really let her go, but that there are times in your life where you have to, you know, mature and, and to make these decisions. But I don't think that that has the, the heft and the weight that it should because everything in this movie is so silly. But I do think that to the extent that this movie works... It works almost entirely on Steve Buscemi's shoulders. Oh, I think that's true. As much as I like Ned Beatty, as much as I like uh, John Glover, they're all just accoutrement to the movie that Steve Buscemi is basically conducting. You know, that he is the focus of the film. And, and none of them could save the movie if he wasn't, you know, doing his thing. So that does beg the question, Liam, not whether Steve Buscemi is the fucking man. I already know <laughs> the answer to that. But it does beg the question, would you recommend Ed and his dead mother to friends of yours? Because, you know, the kind of circles that both of us run into, you know, horror comedy is something that we're probably really intimately familiar with. Uh, the, the kind of, of material on display here um, might appeal to because because of the zombie-ish aspects of it. But do you think that people that you know would like this movie? I think it depends on how their feeling is on goofiness. Um, I think if your draw to horror comedy is that you want horror that has a few like really good jokes in it but is still more of a horror film, this isn't going to work for you. There's just not much horror here. Uh, but if you would like a goofy, fun thing carried by Steve Buscemi, I think it works. I enjoyed it. Uh, as much as I still had some serious things where I was like, this doesn't quite work for me. Overall, it was a really fun watch. It, it, you know, it's not something maybe I would have sought out, but I think if if uh, you're listening and, and, and the idea of a, a 90s goofy comedy you might have caught on cable at the time sounds good, this is definitely that, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I would agree with that. I, I, I'd seen this movie many years back and enjoyed it at the time, but I actually had a lot more fun with it this time, mostly because I think my expectations were in check, and I think that's important. Once you get past the idea that this is not going to be a uh, it'll be more like a comedy horror movie than a horror comedy movie and once you get past the comparisons to Peter Jackson's Brain Dead then you can kind of relax and and kind of sink into the kind of tone that they're going for here and I do think it's a lot of fun and I think that uh, even though it's not very visually interesting to look at that the performances really carry a lot of that humor and and it's a movie that I think I will revisit and it's definitely one I would recommend I still think that there's something missing from it and I also kind of feel like there was something going on with the making of it that I'd like to learn more about. And again, I'm gonna gonna research that and maybe hopefully find out the secrets of Ed and his dead mother. But Liam, that's enough of that movie. We need to move on to another. I want to. I want to say really quick. I want to say huh? really quick. Uh, one of the things I read suggested that there's a version of the film uh, that looks better than what we watched. Well, that's, so, that's easy to believe. Yeah, so I think if 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 you would be turned off, what we watched looked very TV to me, mm -hmm. and uh, supposedly there's a more recent DVD release that manages to make the film look like a actually shot on 35 movie. <laughs> so uh, you know, if, if that matters to you, if, if it matters to you enough to find the best version of this movie, uh, it exists. It's out there. I think it's from Synapse. Uh, with an S. So, uh, yeah, uh, if you're in the mood to search out Ed and His Dead Mother, there is a better copy to find. Well, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for a Tammy and the T-Rex-esque revision of this movie where we can finally get a version that that is what I want it to be. Liam, that is Ed and His Dead Mother, but we now need to talk about what are we going to cover on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids? Tell me, Liam. Um, a classic of action cinema starring one Nicolas Cage Con Air. Directed by Simon West, written by Scott Rosenberg. It's the action classic from 1997 Con Air to be featured on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. Liam, if people want to check out more 
podcasts in the Cinema Smorgasbord family, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can head to cinepunks.com or to cinemasmorgasbord.com. All our episodes are on both of those sites. They can also find us wherever they stream fine podcasts. Uh, or if they just want to keep up to date of when we're releasing new episodes, they can follow us on the social media, specifically on Twitter. We are Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if they follow Cinepunks, uh, P-U-N-X, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, we'll post every time a new episode comes out. You can always leave us a review on iTunes. We appreciate every one of those. If you want to leave us a comment, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can email us through there or contact us through our various social medias. Liam, you can also be found on Twitter. That's at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. And you can find me on Twitter as well, Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E. Why Cinema Smorgasbord is released every single Monday. Uh, a lot of themed different podcasts uh, devoted to actors and actresses as diverse as Jackie Chan, Carol Kane, and the great Dick Miller. Uh, why don't you check us out? Why don't you review us? But with that said, we've covered as much Steve Buscemi content as we can for another week. We'll be back very soon with another Steve Buscemi classic. Good night, everybody. Night night. Like you and I, other people seem to suffer, other people seem to cry, other people find another place to go, and then they die. Happy people live forever, happy people never die, happy people live forever, people just like you and I.